In today's episode, we're going to talk about fandom and live events in China. From Engagement, I'm David Malay, and this is Flip the Switch. Quick plug before we get to our guest introduction today. If you're focused on guest experience or employee experience, definitely go check out our email newsletter. As we work with pro teams and college athletic departments around the country, we're taking the lessons that we learn from our experiments and our projects, and we're putting those insights into the newsletter. A couple of times per week, you'll get everything from the articles and content that are inspiring us to innovate, as well as new tools that we're using and loving. If you get value from this show, you're going to love the newsletter. To sign up, head to engagementpartners.com backslash newsletter. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Flip the Switch, where we sit down with leaders in customer experience and employee experience, and we try to figure out what are the trends that they're paying attention to? What are the experiments that they're running? What are the principles that have driven success in their careers? And then we take all those insights and we apply them to the world of sports and entertainment. Now, most of the time we are stateside and focusing on organizations that are engaging with fans and live events here in the United States. But today's episode is a little bit different. Today, we are going over to China, where we sit down with one of our listeners, Greg Turner. So one of the things that we definitely are doing, and I want to encourage you more to do, if you are listening to this episode and you do cool things in the sports and entertainment space or the employee experience or customer experience space, reach out to me on Twitter at David Malay, and I'd love to hear from you and maybe we'll host you on the show like we're doing here with Greg, like we did last week with Justin Doherty. Um, we want to hear from you guys. We want to highlight the cool things that you're doing so that you can inspire our other listeners of senior leaders in sports and entertainment around the world. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Greg, tee up this episode, and then we'll jump into it. Greg has been in China for the last 20 plus years. He's a Canadian originally, uh, and he is the founder and managing director of Shenzhen High Performance Event Management. So he is in China and he's running uh, different events, uh, overseeing as a general manager of different venues oftentimes. And I don't want to steal his thunder, but fandom and live events in China very, very different than what we're used to here in the Western world. They're battling totally different things. And I think what you're going to find is that there are a lot of things to learn from the way that China is approaching fandom and live events because they have different challenges. And their challenges really are around the fact that many fans that are attending events don't know how to attend organic, non-orchestrated events. So they've got to educate fans and bring fans in in a different way than they're used to uh, and then different way that we might be used to. So there are a lot of lessons and things that they're doing to try to engage fans emotionally that I think we can pick up and extrapolate and take to our Western world. Um, so without further ado, let's get into this episode with Greg Turner. Greg, welcome to the show, my man. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I am really excited to get into this episode because it's going to be pretty different from some of the stuff that we've talked about, but also the same in many ways. Um, so when I think about the show Flip the Switch and what we initially wanted to do with the show, it was really about 
infusing ideas from outside of the things that we see every day in sports and entertainment and live events and bringing them into our awareness, if you, if that makes sense. And, and so that we can get new ideas from it. And I'm really excited because I think you're going to bring a lot of new ideas because you're not in the U S you, you live in China, uh, in Shenzhen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about kind of how you got there, uh, we'll touch on that briefly. Um, but I, I think the the world that you're living in in sports and entertainment and live events obviously has a lot of parallels, but it's going to have a lot of differences. So I'm really excited to get into talking about fandom in China and what it's like, the differences between sports and entertainment and live events there versus here. And anyway, Greg, excited to have you on. Yeah, it's great. It's great. You know, I, I got to say, too, the, the podcast is really great for me here in China because it gives me a chance to to learn and hear from from other people in other parts of the world. And some of the content just hits right right to home and other parts. It's, it's coming out of left field for me, but it's all really quite useful. So um, I'm glad I can add my voice. Your, your favorite episode that we've recorded so far? Uh, the one with uh, let me see, the one that you, with uh, Zoe with Zoe Scammon. That one well, was it's just knocked it right knocked it right on the head for what makes a Chinese fan and where their interests are and when she was talking about that diversity of, of what makes a fan and how uh, you know they're really good to really connect with them you got to be able to connect on all the different levels yeah um, def- definitely one of our favorite episodes we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes for everybody in case you haven't heard that episode. Um, but Greg, let's get into it. I mean, talk to us first of all, before we really get into fandom and, uh, fan engagement, customer experiences, talk to us a little bit about how you ended up in China, because I I think it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of an interesting journey. Yeah. So I've been over here in China for 20 years. Um, I came over in 2000. Um, originally after I graduated university, I wanted to, to get out and see the world a little bit. So I signed up for a school exchange program to come over here for four months school program. And then that turned into a, an internship in Beijing where I was working for Air Canada for a year and a half. And then that turned into a, I moved down to Shanghai after that, wanting to explore a little bit more. And then that turned in, and then there is where I got my start into live events and sports. Um, basically at that time you had brands like Adidas and Nike and Coca-Cola wanting to use sports to connect with this growing consumer base that was that was emerging in China. And so I got involved with some agencies trying to start, trying to do that. Then we started doing some of our own IP events. So we were doing some rugby events and some running events and some motorsports events. Um, I've done venue management along the way. Uh, in Shanghai, I managed a, an 80 year old municipally preserved stadium that with a football field big enough to actually hold four football fields. So it's just this massive, massive venue that was built in the 1930s. And I worked with a lady named Yang Yang, who's China's first ever Winter Olympic gold medalist on trying to, on operating a venue in Shanghai and trying to use it to build grassroots sports for winter and, and ice sports like skate, ice hockey and, and figure skating and short track speed skating. Uh, my most recent position, I was in a city called Shanto, which is about two and a half hours up the coast from Hong Kong, where I was working for the Li Kaxing Foundation. Um, uh, he's from, Li Kaxing is from that, that, uh, city and he's over his career, he's donated something like 2 billion us dollars to help support the development of the city. And one of his most recent projects is what I was on, what I was on for, which was building a 6,000 seat NBA standard multifunction arena with an attached 180 room hotel and an Olympic size swimming pool and a whole, whole bunch of other, um, uh, 
gadgets and stuff like that. So I joined the project from when it was basically a hole in the ground, uh, overseeing the construction from an operator's point of view, making sure that what was built was going to be something that could be used to, to fulfill the vision of, of what Mr. Lead put out for the venue. And then built the team, built the business plan, built the marketing plan, uh, turned, turned it from a hole in the ground into an operating venue, ran it for, for two and a half years. And our last year there, 2019, we had over 50 events at the venue, which uh, for the third tier Chinese city and a privately run venue of the size has, has never been done before. So that was quite an adventure. Incredible. No, so, now, like you said, I'm here in Shenzhen yep. and uh, operating my, running my own company, basically using all the experience I've gained it for the past 20 years to help international rights holders and properties and, and companies interested in the sports entertainment market in China to, to help solve their problems. I love it. And, and I, the way I kind of see you is mm-hmm. a, a little bit of a, a jack of all trades, but kind of a, a general manager anytime uh, a sports and entertainment company in China wants to really whether it be opening a new venue, whether it be trying to get a hold of and bring in new fans, creating an experience for athletes and for fans that that make a lot of sense. It's kind of how I see you. Is that is that about right? How, what, what's your um, what's your I, quick elevator pitch for when you're talking to sports and entertainment <laughs> companies in in China for what you do? Uh, that my experience has given me insights into into how the industry works that you wouldn't find for any anybody else internationally or even in China. My, my background for, for working in Shanghai and the Shanto project, um, I've got an understanding on a countrywide level better than anybody else. Love it. So general manager is a, is a good way to, of anything to do with sports entertainment is a good way to fill it in. Well, hopefully that experience lends some insight here into the podcast. So let's jump into it. Um, I mean, for, first things first, I think if I'm listening to this, I, I might want to know, you know, what are the biggest differences between sports and live events in China versus in the West, and how do you know how do fans consume content in China? It, talk to us about some of those differences. Right. So I think the the what you got to start when you're framing the whole idea of sports and live live events in China is that 20 years ago there were no live events essentially, right? There were no live sports essentially, not in a commercial sense that we understand now. Um, so. For those of us coming from the West, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you, David. I mean, me, my first experiences at live events were with my dad taking me to a hockey game or, you know, my parents taking me to a concert or, or these kinds of really driven by your family, driven by your parents, the, handing down these kinds of experiences to you. In China, they don't have that kind of, that kind of uh, handing down of, of enjoying live experiences. So you've got a whole fan base of people that are creating the industry right now right? Creating what a fan is. Um, they don't have the, the, the history to build upon, but instead they're trying to, to, to blaze a new path on, on, on identifying what they enjoy, how they're going to build, how they're going to enjoy it and, uh, and how it's all going to affect their daily lives and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a blue ocean of opportunity in a lot of ways. Um, but it's, it's also something that, uh, is deeply affected by, by the government and the way the government manages sports events. Uh, and that's something that, uh, if you have about maybe, if you're willing to give me maybe about 10, ep- 10 episodes, we could probably <laughs> discuss the whole, the whole involvement between government and sports and government and live, inter- live entertainment, but I'll, let's try and keep it not so long, I guess. So, I mean, when you talk about there not even being fans 20 years ago, this opens up mm-hmm. so many more questions. 
Because I think a lot of the companies that we work with at Engagement, a lot of the sports and entertainment properties that we work with have had fans for literally a century. Uh, and so there yeah. are things that are ingrained where sometimes the things that we're dealing with is complacency where fans just come and so they don't innovate because fans are always going to show up. They always have. You guys seem to be facing completely different issues that I could see where you're having to educate a fan about when to cheer, when not. I mean, I guess talk to us about what are the activities that you see sports and entertainment properties engaging in to try to create this fandom from from scratch when fans don't even know how to be fans, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll start first with a story about just that, about when fans don't know how to be fans. When we opened up the, the venue in Shanto, the sports park, um, the first event we ever did was a, an Israeli modern dance show, right? Very, very unique show, very different. Um, nothing like it had ever been seen in the city. It's the 5 million people in that city. Nothing like it had ever been there before. And the audience, I remember the, the day like before the show and the audience had filled in. It was a sold out show. Um, and I walked into the arena, onto the floor, and you could have heard a pin drop Everybody in the building was so excited to be to be there to be able to experience this show, something they never in their life dreamed that they would ever be able to see in Shanto. And uh, after the show, as the the people were exiting the building, I, I pulled a few a few people to the side and I just asked them, "What do you think? Did you enjoy it? Um, do you want to see more content like this?" And they said, "I don't have any idea what just happened. I didn't understand anything, but I enjoyed it so much, and thank you so much for bringing it to us." Right. So. Whether they would still have that same level of interest four or five of the same, you know, four or five modern dance shows later, who knows? But for that one moment, they were just so thankful and so happy to have been able to watch the show that they were they were over the moon. What was it specifically that they were thankful for if they didn't understand what was going on? I mean, what were they thankful for? Just the opportunity to have the experience, just the opportunity to be there in the stands, you know, 6,000 people with them watching this show that nobody in the building understood, right? <laughs> and it was just so different to them. I mean, Shanto is a very traditional uh, region of the country. They, the, uh, when I first moved to the city, I always tell people the most exciting thing for me to do on the weekends was go to Walmart. And there was one Walmart in the city, and then we'd go there and we'd do some shopping, and, and then we'd leave, and that would be our weekend. Um, so, you know, they, they drink tea. Uh, their food is delicious, um, but other than that, there's not a lot of mm. what I would say was modern modern entertainment in the city. When I first got there, there was no movie theaters to speak of of any kind of quality. Um, there was no. We were the first venue of the kind in the whole. The region is 20 million people. We were the first venue of the kind for for that city of 20 million people, and just trying just the opportunity that they didn't have to go to Shanghai or, or Shenzhen or Beijing or Hong Kong to see this kind of stuff. They could stay home, go out in the evening, watch it and drive home and, and, and send the babysitter home at the end of the night. That kind of thing was just so special to them. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what kind of experiments and things people are running when you have a fan base that is just excited to come to an event and they don't have these elevated expectations like so many fans in the West have. I'm excited to hear what you guys are cooking up. So, um, yeah. but, oh, go ahead. What were we going to say? No, no, it's, it's, uh, I've, I've got some great stories for you. So let's keep going. All right, all right. Let's keep rocking. Um, I, th- I think though, I mean, an- another thing that might help provide context for our listeners that tend to be mostly Western listeners of the show. Uh, talk to us a little bit about some of the case studies of successful 
companies or organizations from the West coming into China. I think about the NBA as being really successful mm-hmm. in that. I think about, you know, the PAC 12 for us that we do a lot of work in the college market with college athletic departments. PAC 12 has spent a lot mm-hmm. of time investing in chi- building Chinese fans. Um, and, and UFC might, might be a, another good example to talk, talk about, but I guess talk to us about some of the most successful case studies of Western organizations coming into China. Sure, sure. I think I think to to really frame that and, and make sure that the, your listeners get the most out of understanding why these companies have succeeded, it's important first to to explain what the government's role is in all of this, um, because sports in China, it's sports especially in China, it's driven by the government. Um, it's it's the one that sets out the priorities. It's the one that decides uh, how the investment's going to go and, and what's going to happen and what's not going to happen essentially, um, and. Uh, you know, in about 2019, the government came out and they released this new document, this new policy document that basically said that they want to drive up the consumption of sports to 2 trillion renminbi per year by 2025. So if you divide that by seven, you know, you're looking at a market of a sports consumption market of what, 400, 500 billion US dollars um, annually. Uh, and so for right now, it's a market of, I think, about a hundred and some billion U.S. dollars per year. So there's a huge wow. space for them to grow. There's a huge space to grow. Um, and so the gov- and then the government lays out all of these different policy objectives that they want to accomplish, whether it's, you know, with events or whether it's with participation, mass sports or fitness or manufacturing or venue operations, all of this kind of stuff. They... They, they lay out policies on how they're going to, to make, these, make these goals succeed. And Chinese companies get this really clearly. They understand it. So they, they read what the government puts together, and then they decide, okay, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to do it in this way so it supports the government's policy. And then that opens up a lot of doors for them. That lowers a lot of barriers. This is where you really get this distinction with international companies that succeed and those that struggle. For the NBA, they've done a fantastic job of making sure that every step along the way, they're aligned with the government and they're aligned with understanding what the government's goals are and helping to achieve them. So that's why when you look at the, um, the uh, last year or two years ago, whenever it was, when the Houston Rockets GM came out and, and said his support for, for Hong Kong and, and the huge yep, media yep. uproar that came out of that. And NBA was pulled from live broadcast. They were pulled basically from everything. Um, but because of their relationships and their longstanding support for, for China and, and the government and the government's policies, I won't say for the government, for the government's policies, um, they actually didn't lose a, lose a cent of revenue. Hmm. Everything that was owed to them, they, it was paid out to them. Because of because of their ability to make sure that they're a part of China with what they do in China. Um, more recently, the UFC is a really great case study for what they've done, um, and there's a couple different ways that they've they've accomplished this. Um, they opened up a performance center here, same thing as they have in Las Vegas, where they basically train athletes and, and produce content, and and, and uh, it's a, you know a live action production studio. And they built the same thing here in Shanghai, but I think it's something like four times bigger. Um, so it's this massive scale thing. Um, the UFC and combat sports like this, in general, they're not a big part of China's sports landscape because they're not on, they're not on Olympic sports, and they're not a sport that a lot of people will participate in. So they started off kind of at a bit of a disadvantage, 
But they built this this venue and a very, very um, strategic decision with it is they went to the Chinese Olympic Committee and worked out a deal to let all of the training facilities inside of their venue, uh, they gave access to all Chinese Olympic athletes to go in there and use this, this all the top level coaches, all the top level facilities, and really uh, help improve the quality of the athletes that they're producing. So... In this way, they went from very much on the outside of Chinese sports and moved it right into the center of, of the China Olympic Committee, where they're maybe the most important partner, international partner for the Chinese Olympic Committee. And that's opened up so, much more, so many more doors that, to get their support. So when they're running their events or they're putting their, their stuff on television or on, on streaming, um, they don't run into the same kind of blocks that maybe some other sports might uh, that don't have that same connection to the government. But that, that to me, it seems so basic. I mean, I, I think about some of the things, I mean, maybe it's not, but when whenever we're approaching something, always the mindset is, what does success look like for the other side, right? When we're negotiating mm-hmm. any kind of deal or we're trying to create any kind of partnership, the partnership always starts with, what does success look like for them? And then you build backwards mm-hmm. based on that. And so if you know that you're dealing with the government and you know that you're dealing with what they care about, you tap into that and say, okay, what's the government's needs, wants, desires, ambitions, and how can we build something that's appealing to those things and still accomplishes all of our goals, right? And if you lead with that, mm-hmm. it, it seems like what the UFC did would be a, a no-brainer. Yeah, absolutely. But a lot of organizations don't come in like that. They come in looking at the size of the market and just wanting to sell. And they don't consider the, 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 the cultural or the, the political situation that they're going to be running into. And I won't, I won't name any teams, but you get a lot of European football teams coming in with that kind of attitude mm. where they're just here to sell their name and sell their athletes and, and basically make as much money as they can as quickly as they can without leaving any kind of lasting legacy for, for developing football in China. Um, that's starting to shift. You're starting to see some teams actually starting to invest a little bit more into, into helping to develop football in China. But there's a, a, a huge legacy that's going to have to over, be overcome before they can really consider themselves any kind of success in China, having in- achieved any kind of success here. Interesting. I, I, on, on this mm-hmm. note, and then we can dive back into fandom. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, have, I have to ask this question, being a former Disney cast member, obviously we have a lot of former ex-Disney leaders that come on the show. Um, from an outsider's perspective, because I only hear from other former Disney leaders, I mean, how did you do, how did you think Disney handled coming into China uh, and how they approached it? I know Bob Iger's quote was, what was it? Authentically Disney, distinctly Chinese. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. talk to us about from your point of view as a third party. How did you see that and, and what did they do well? What did, Where were their missteps? Yeah. So I always say like I've. Up until recently, when I added the UFC, I've always said that the NBA and, and Disney are the two really positive case studies for co- international entertainment companies that got how to do China, right? They, they just did it right. And I think that the opening of Disneyland really shows how much Disney got China. Um, you know, I, their, their, the risk they took there was really quite strong, bringing on a, a local partner and, and building something up the way they did. There's a lot of steps along the way that the things could have gone sideways. And then they had the, the boss of Wanda Group, the, the big property group here that bought Endeavor and is, you know, has a, had his fingers into everything, came out and said, I'm going to open up my own amusement parks and I'm going to drive Disney out of here in five years. Well, 
within four years, he sold the business and, and completely left the amusement park, uh, amusement wow. park business to Disney. Yeah. <laughs> so they just, they just dominated it. They just, they just, uh, came in, they approached it in the right way. Culturally sensitive. When, yeah. Uh, when you say they aware. approached it in the right way, I mean, what made them successful specifically? What were some of the specific strategies? Um, I would say taking the time to understand who were their key stakeholders, building those key relationships, um, and really, uh, on, on, on the, on the back end side. And then on the front end side, being culturally sensitive. So what they were presenting in China wasn't a U.S. Disney, but it was a Chinese Disney or an international Disney, um, that Chinese consumers could feel more comfortable supporting and being part of. That makes sense. Um, all right, let's yeah. jump into fandom. Uh, obviously, yep. uh, you know, we talk a lot about fandom on this show and I think, what, from what we've heard already, the Chinese fan is quite different than the Western fan, where some of the trends on the Western side, right, we're thinking a lot about here fans being more participative in their environment. They don't just want to passively consume. But the example that you just told us earlier in the show was they were just there, happy to be there, uh, and they didn't even know necessarily what was going on. Um, so talk to us a little bit about the evolution of the Chinese fandom and maybe where 20 years ago where we didn't have live events as much in China. Uh, now we have them. I mean, talk to us a little bit about the evolution from, for where we are now, uh, with Chinese fandom. Right. So, um, it's, I think one thing to, to these upfront is China is such a big market. It's, it's so diverse in, in, in it's how it's approaching fandom in Shanghai, uh, Beijing and, you know, the big first tier markets, you have a lot more, it's a lot more mature. It's a lot more developed. And, and the people, the fans that are in those cities have much higher expectations. So when I give the story about Shanto, that's a reflection of, of where Shanto is in, in its development, which is a third tier city that's just starting to open up and, and starting to internationalize. But if we like, if we look just at Shanghai and Beijing and, and similar kinds of markets that have quite developed, that have developed quite well in the past 20 years, um, I think a few of the things that are still holding I mean, there are amazing experiences you can have in China, right? Uh, whether it's um, restaurants or movies or shopping or, you know, even national parks, even like there's just so many things you can do here that are just absolutely mind-blowingly phenomenally phenomenal experiences. Um, fandom and fan experiences, I would say, aren't quite there yet. Um, <laughs> there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, and I think it's also important to separate sports and entertainment. Um, first of all, the venues where these big events happen, where these big pop concerts or, or sports events happen, they're, they're all generally owned by the government. Um, and they're generally run by local bureaucrats that don't really care about the commercial value of the events. They just want to make sure that at the end of the year, their venue is not losing money. Right, because that's what they're judged on is, is the performance of the venue in terms of money losing. Yeah. So what that is is that's um that that creates a a venue where these events are trying to happen, which don't allow you to really create great things. Or if you are, you're building it from scratch. Um the WTA finals here in Shenzhen. Uh, the, the first one here was in 2019, and it's held at, at a venue here called the Shenzhen Bay uh, Sports Center, 
which is a 25,000 seat arena and uh, I think an 8,000 or 25,000 seat stadium and I think a 8,000 seat arena and a whole bunch of other sports venues, the community sports activities and, and schools and stuff like that inside of this building. Um, and they came in to this to this building and they they had to build everything themselves from the hospitality section to the the warm-up areas for the players to even even the arena bowl needed them to come in and, and basically build it out to something that could support the kind of event they wanted to accomplish. So when you're putting a lot of investment into those very fundamental parts of making a great event, it really limits your ability to invest into creating the, the unique experiences that you need to, to rank with the, the best events in the world. Um, we are start. I mean, he, he was the, the, I know the organizers really quite well, and he was in a situation where this venue on a day-to-day basis was left for bat, daily badminton. People could come in from the community and, and play badminton there or wow. play ping pong there or play, you know, run around the, the stadium and the stadium track. And so, so, so different first of all, negotiating of venues here in the States. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like it's, you know, in the States, there's such a big push about making sure that the venues are used on non-event days. But here, it's kind of the exact opposite, where the big push is to make sure they are available for the big event days. Because you've got to go in there and you've got to negotiate with all of these groups that use it in their daily lives to say, okay, well, we need you to take two weeks off so we can come in here and put on a tennis tournament. Right, we can put on the biggest women's tenement tournament tennis tournament in the world. So the built because the, because they're the government is is really funding these buildings. What I hear you saying is that they almost are thinking community first as opposed to commercialization yeah. first. Yeah, absolutely, and that this is a legacy of of how sports is developed in China, where there's two driving forces for sports. One dates back to 1918 with Mao Zedong's first ever pub paper that he published in a magazine, which was about the need for individuals to be healthy and fit, right? This is the first thing he ever published was how personal fitness was, was so important. And then the other one is, is uh, dating from the, after the revolution, when the Soviets and the Chinese had a very strong relationship. And the Soviets came in and they said, China needs to be strong on an international sports front and deliver the best athletes so the communist nations can have the most gold medals. And so it, there's two driving forces. One is uh, personal fitness and one is uh, national glory. And so commercialization doesn't really fit in that mix. So you have all these sports bureau of people that are running venues where their priorities are either making it available for the community or training their training elite athletes. And if you're a, if you're an arena, you're not really dealing with the elite athletes. So all you can do is make it available for the community. And so they build these beautiful buildings, a huge investment, huge architecture. And then once the, once the big event that it was built for is finished, it's left to the local sports bureau who turns it into a community sports venue. Does that impact the ability to invest in new technologies around kind of fan experiences? I would obviously think so, but I I mean, I, where, where my brain is going on this is similar to college athletics, where a lot of times college athletic departments see themselves as, even though they have the incredibly massive venues where fans come in and they don't necessarily use it as a community uh, builder or driver, if you will, because they're not incentivized from a revenue perspective, because technically they're classified as a nonprofit, I think they're really resistant to add a lot of these new technologies that could drive more revenue. 
And it's, it feels like that's the same thing in China. Um, I would say, well, right now with, with the venues, you know, they're such a key part of the fan experience. As part of this new reform that the government's undertaking, they want to get rid of all the venues and get private operators for them. Oh, wow. So okay. we're starting to see some of the professional teams take over the venues where they play. Um, but I would say even more so, because China is such a tech-savvy tech nation, like they're so on cutting edge for so much stuff, you're going to see a top-down approach to changing the events in terms of how tech's involved, where your Alibabas and your Tencents are moving into the spaces and dragging their technology with them to help improve the fan experience. It's going to be a while till they get to the live events, I think, but you're already starting to see it with you know the way that some of the social media approaches sports and some of the different channels that people can can consume sports away from the live events. It's already um, quite some really some really fun stuff going on. Well, let's get into that. I mean, what are some of the digital strategies that sports and entertainment properties and live events? What are some of the digital strategies being used in China to drive fandom right now? Right. So I would say the, the first thing that you need to remember is, is an international sports property. Um, if you're a league in the UK or the US or somewhere, um, is your games are not going to be viewed live, right? Because of the time difference, you know, the US games come on at maybe seven, sometime at seven o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock in the morning when people are getting ready for work or getting the kids out to school or, or actually at work. So they're not going to be watching it live. Um, so how do you package that to be something that they, if they're, if they're a a, a hardcore fan, they can catch the key moments without disrupting their the, the requirements that they need in their life, right? So, you know, again, the, sh the short form videos and the, and, the, and the things like that, there's a lot of engagement on TikTok and, and, and uh, or Douyin as it is here and, and WeChat and stuff like that to, to get that content out. Um, the other side of the fan and this, the fandom, and this is what I really liked about Zoe's podcast, Zoe's episode, is that Sports fans here, sports are far from being top of the top of the list, right? Mm. In terms of what people are really interested in, you know, for so much of China, the top of the list is food, and then maybe it's 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 pop culture, right? You know, their their favorite pop culture athletes or favorite pop culture stars or whatever else, um, and then clothing and fashion and stuff like that. There's so many other items above sports before you can get to to catch people's attention. So how do you connect what you're doing with your with your sports property to where your fans really are? Um, so you're seeing a lot of um, crossovers between these pop icons or these KOLs um, that are dominating social media in China right now. What, what's, a, with, what's a KOL? Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, key opinion leader. Okay. Okay. So it's like, it's the, it's the guys that are live streaming at home and selling, selling millions of dollars with a product every year just by sitting at home. Never heard that term. Like, telling New people how much they like it. I'm going to start really? using it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I got KOLs, KOLs and uh, KOCs, key, uh, key opinion consumers. Okay. Okay. I'm here for that. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they, they, they are, those are two key terms in, 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 in China when you're talking about making markets happen. I like it. I like it. Okay. Keep, keep rolling. Didn't yeah, mean to interrupt yeah. you, but I had to define that. No, pr no problem. So yeah, KOLs, um, you know, there's one KOL, his name's Austin Lee. He can sell a million dollars worth of product in a day just by, li just by live streaming, right? He'll turn on his, because people just trust him so much and, mm -hmm. and follow him so closely. When he comes on and he says that he likes this, he'll sell a million dollars like that. It's not, it doesn't even take a, take effort from him. So to get those kinds of people coming on and starting to support your sports events uh, and your sports properties and, and your live entertainment properties even is really quite a key, uh, key step that sports 
are starting to understand. Live events are starting to understand. Are, are any of the athletes themselves some of those KOLs? Uh, or do you tend to see most of the KOLs come from fashion, from food in China, from music in China? Well, here's the thing about KOLs is they're generally not stars. They're just regular people that have started streaming. You know, in China, you would be a KOL. You could be a KOL, but right, Katie? We're moving you, to China. Let's go. Just, <laughs> we'll, we'll go be we'll, we'll go be KOLs in China because I'm not in America. <laughs> yeah, you know it's 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 just regular people with a with a camera that turn it on and they and they create a show and people just tune into it and they start following it and then once you develop an audience big enough, you can start promoting products and then and then you're on your way. Um, at the same time, though, you do have athletes, which obviously who obviously have a voice here. Um, and generally tend to be international athletes because local athletes don't have the profile so much. Um, but you know, LeBron James is a great example. He's got a huge following here. Um, you know, some of the European football stars, they all have quite huge followings. I don't think that they use it. The, the individuals don't, they might sometimes need a little bit more support on, on how they can use the power that they have, Mm -hmm. especially the inter the international stars. Um, because they, they focus they can focus too much on the interests that people don't have. You know, they, they focus too much on the basketball or the sports that they play and they need to get more into people's daily lives. And it's difficult to do unless you're living here because you just can't understand what really drives people's interests. That, that makes sense. Are there any good case mm-hmm. studies that you can give our, our listeners so that they can look up and we can put links into around uh, a KOL from a different a different industry. So again, a KOL coming from somewhere other than sports, partnering with a sports team or a live events organization to drive that fandom. Are there any off the top of your head that that come to mind? To be honest, no, not that I can think of offhand. I'm sure that they're out there, but obviously maybe they just haven't made a big enough impact for me to, to remember. Um, but I mean, there, there's, there's good brand associations that are going on where, where okay. sports brands are coming in and connecting with, you know, local, local brands that are, that are of interest to, to people to, again, try and help to soften the edges of their international status or, or their American status or their European status and turn them more into a, something that local consumers can connect with. And any, any good um, examples there? Um, I think that, you know, always looking at what, Believe it or not, what makeup brands do hmm. is always really quite interesting and, and how they're connecting with makeup brands. Because in a lot of ways, makeup brands are driving how uh, young consumers are connecting with the market. So uh, like the whole idea of a KOL came out from makeup brands. Um, and, uh, you know, again, the, the sports in general, though, they, they're, they're not leading the market. They're following the market. It's always taking them a little bit more to, uh, to catch up. Uh, so to say that there's specific brand associations, again, nothing's popping to my mind, but there's a, there's a stronger impression on me that the brand associations are more successful than the KOL, KOL connections. Got it. Well, if you, if you think of any good ones, yeah. message us afterwards and, and we'll link it in the show notes. For here. sure. Um, for sure. So uh, when we, when we think about this, I mean, what are some more of the trends that you're seeing that are improving in engagement and experience for fans, whether they're attending the events in person or whether we're talking about it at home, obviously when we're talking about partnerships and whatnot, it's about getting to the hearts of those fans and trying to get them interested based on their love for something else. Um, again, not something we see a lot of, I mean, we're seeing more of it here in the States, especially on the pro side. 
because I think they're just a lot more savvy with stuff like that. I mean, on the college side, I know sometimes we see a lot more ego where that they don't necessarily want to partner with another brand. The brand's got to pay them to be associated with it. And it's like, guys, it's going to help grow your fandom, which drives tickets. So make that partnership. But are, are there yeah. are there are there other trends or things that you're seeing right now in China around fandom and to to really tap into the hearts of those fans? Yeah, well, we talked a little bit already on how the government's trying to divest itself of the venues, and I think as as more commercial operators come in and take over the venues, uh, improve their operations to focus more on the commercial uh, live event experience rather than the the commercial the community sports needs that's going to do a that's probably the most important change that's going to be happening um, in terms of domestic sports there's a big push on uh, professionalizing the sports leagues here the CSL and the CBA the, the soccer league and the basketball league um, where previously again they were because they were driven by the government and they were run by the government there was real limitations on how commercial they could get and they were more focused on delivering the political results rather than the commercial results but you've got Yao Ming now in charge of the CBA and you've got some really smart people in charge of the CSL that are commercially focused and, and pushing to become uh, more a Chinese version of of successful leagues overseas, of international leagues, right? They'll never be an exact copy of the NBA or, or the English Premier League, sure. But they'll be they'll be successful Chinese versions of the of of commercial leagues for sure. So on sports side, I would say that. Okay. On the on the on the entertainment side, I think the the it's very it's really interesting because sports is so tightly controlled traditionally by the government. Whereas entertainment is, once there's a propaganda department that needs to approve every show that goes on stage anywhere in the country, right? To make sure that the artist is is, is not going to do anything against the interest of the, the country or the party or whatever else criteria they have to judge on. And so once you get past that propaganda, that propaganda department, you're, you're free reign to make the event as much fun as you want to do and you want to spend on it. Um, so... What's probably going to be happening, I think, with with that kind of thing is that you're going to see more, maybe a little bit of uh, consolidation with some of the promoters who are making the events happening, which is going to in turn uh, raise the amount of investment that they're going to be able to put into making shows happen. So right now within China for a, for an entertainment show, say for a pop concert tour, um, for every region of the country, they're dealing with a different promoter that has a different different budget and different interests and in why they're trying to do this show, which makes it really tough for, for the, the show producers to create something that has a national appeal or can be taken nationally because it just doesn't match for every promoter's interests. There isn't the Live Nations or the, you know, the, the big global um, platform or just um, promoters that there are overseas, they aren't quite as powerful here. So I think you were going to see a little bit of consolidation with that, where people are going to start being able to invest more into the events and be able to to deliver a better experience um, for the fans at the events themselves. I got it. it it's super interesting. Um, when, when we think about... It's, it's very different. It's so, it's so different. Uh, <laughs> it's I mean, so different, yeah. When we think about again, we started with this conversation with thinking about, you know, what does success look like and leading that when you're talking about partnerships for a lot of our listeners that happen to be in the West. I mean, what, what are some things that they, you feel like they could learn from, even if they're not trying to enter the the Chinese market, what are some things that the Chinese market does well, you feel like that could be learned and adapted and applied over here in the, in the Western side of things? 
Um, I think that uh, there's probably some balance that China hasn't reached yet, but they're maybe closer than the West on how to use their venues f- every day, all the time, and make it make it available for everybody. Um, you know, the, the the big push on the community sports, they're a lot closer to making it a, a, a venue that always has stuff going on. Um, so I think that there's something there that could be taken away. Um, I think that the the connection between uh, sports fandom, because sports just don't register for a lot of people, connecting the sports with the whole array of different interests that people have is really quite important, is really something that uh, could be looked at and understood a little bit more in depth uh, as well. Interesting. Okay. When you think yeah. about the Chinese market, where do you feel like the biggest learnings can be and, and biggest opportunities for growth in the Chinese market based on some of the things that you've seen on the, on the Western side of the business? Diversifying the revenue and finding more revenue sources, right? Right now it's, it's driven by sponsorship and ticketing hmm. and that's all that there is. There's no concessions. There's no merchandise. There's no, you're talking uh, about in game, you know, all the, yeah, day in-game of, day or of at events. events, day at events, whatever it is. I mean, it, 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 at anywhere in the whole process of an event, whether it's from the day you start selling tickets to the day you, you give the last press release out on the event, um, there's just not a lot of revenue being created um, outside of ticketing and sponsorship. Got it. Fast, so, yeah. Fascinating learnings. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. for me, it's so interesting that you know China, they love food, and their food here is so diverse, and it's so much flavor and so delicious. But you can't get good food in an event. You go to an that event doesn't make and any sense. No, if that's no the food big push, and doesn't people, make if, any sense at all. If, again, and, if that's, and, if that's so what people, fans, if that's what fans care about, right? We talk about aligning yeah. those interests, really understanding what does success yep. look like for the for the fan figuring out what are their goals, what are their motivations. If it's built around food, you better freaking infuse food into your venues. Exactly. Go out there and get the, even get the street street food vendors, bring them into the venue and get them selling and take 20% of their take. You know, why wouldn't you do that? That's what we were doing. That's what we tried to do in Chanto because there were so many just local mom and pop restaurants and we just invited a whole bunch of them to come in and, and just set up and, and sell their, sell whatever they were making. And we just take a small portion of it and, you know, the, the just drew, it just made the experience so much more interesting and, 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 uh, connected with people a lot better. In Shanto, especially where the example was, this was the first time they had seen a live event. So it would make sense to also bring in things that they're familiar with. With so much other mm-hmm. unfamiliarity around, it would make sense to bring in some things that they're familiar with that they could identify with and associate with that could build trust. Again, going back to that, so yeah. much of this with fandom is building trust. Um, that it would make it would be a no brainer to do that. So good on you guys for for making that happen, Enchanto. Yeah, that was an adventure. I mean, we when we when we went in there, we had to set up, we had to teach people how to buy tickets. Before we arrived there, when there when there was an event, whether whatever kind of event it was, tickets were given away. Whether it was run by the governments or whether it was run by private companies, they just gave all the tickets away. Um, so we had to teach people that they actually had to buy tickets. I remember there was this one time I was out at a uh, I was out at a restaurant and meeting some people for the first time, and they asked me what I did, and I told them I was the general manager for this venue, and and they, oh I heard you have this event coming up, and I said yeah yeah, if you want tickets let me know I can help to I can help to um, I can help to f- to get you some right, not saying I was going to get them for free, but I can help you purchase sure. some, 
And his reply back was, oh, no, no, I don't need that. I, I, know, I know the people that are running the event. They'll get, they'll get me the free tickets. And I'm just sitting there going, I'm running the event. You don't know <laughs> who's running the event. They're not, you're not going to get free tickets. But that's just the culture that they had is that they just were used to being able to use their connections to get free, free whatever they wanted. Hmm. Yeah. It, I'm excited to see what's to come in China around fandom and around sports and entertainment, live events, the evolution that a lot of these venues are having. And it, it's, it's cool seeing you on the forefront, Craig. Yeah, it's 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 been an adventure to get here. You know, I, there's a there's a million other stories I could tell about the 20 years to get to this point right now, but we only have the hours, so can only share so many. I hear that. Well, Greg, any any yeah. final words of advice uh, for our listeners? And I kind of want to split it up into two pieces, right? Words of advice for people trying to enter the Chinese market, and words of advice for those of our Western listeners that. Uh, are, are trying to take something away from this episode, trying to to learn something from all the all the all the challenges you guys are going through over there in China. Right. Well, I, I would say, I mean, I think that the China focus, the China related one, is probably good for everybody, anyways. And that's to take the time to understand what you're really trying to do um, before you jump in feet first. Um, China is such a huge market and I hate it whenever I hear anybody say, if we can only sell to 1% of everybody in China, we'll be millionaires. If you come in with that approach, you're never going to sell to anybody because you're not, you're not tailoring what you're doing, right? You're just trying to throw it out in the market and hope somebody buys it because there's so many people. Chinese people, the, the Chinese market, Chinese consumers are a lot more savvy than that. So take the time to understand what you're doing, figure out who the stakeholders are and build a plan to make sure that, that you're going to succeed, you know, um, or at least that you're putting yourself in the best position, best position to be able to succeed. Um, China drives that home because there's just so much, so much going on so fast. When, and then for the, yep. I I was just going to ask you to expand on and and, and give me the second, the second part of that question. Trying to enter China and then somebody on the Western (laughs) side, what can they learn? Maybe it's the same answer, which is ultimately understand what the end goal is. Understand what your fan is looking for. Understand who you're trying to sell to, what they're looking for. You you might have just answered both questions with one in one fell swoop. Yeah, I, 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 I think so. I mean, maybe just one more part about the China side is that I've seen people come in here and there's just so many opportunities available. That if you're not, and this is another thing that Disney did very well. They knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to come in and they wanted to set up the the best Disneyland in the world, right? And they wanted, that's what they were going to do. And that's what they accomplished. I'm sure along the way that Bob Eager got a million other ideas thrown at him saying, well, why don't you come and do this? Why don't you come and do that? Why don't you come and do this? We'll pay you to come and do this. And he, I'm sure he stayed focused on what he wanted to accomplish, made sure his team stayed focused on it, drove all his resources into it, and made it into the best best amusement park in the world, um, as, far as, I've, as far as I've been able to tell. Well, we'll take that. As, as a former cast member, I used to be like, hey, thank you. You're <laughs> helping sell the brand for me. I, I can't say that anymore. But uh, no, Greg, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been awesome having, having you mm-hmm. on and, and learning from you and, and what yeah, you guys it's been are doing fun. in the Chinese market. Yeah, it's been really fun. Greg, where can people reach you if they want to follow along your journey, reach out to you, engage with you uh, as they continue in the, in the future? Sure. So because I'm, I'm stuck behind the Chinese firewall, the great firewall, um, the best place to connect with me is on LinkedIn. Uh, and you can find me, Greg Allen Turner. Uh, and so put that in the, in the, in the show notes. We'll, we'll, we'll sure. link that. You guys don't have Twitter in yeah. China? <laughs> nope. 
No Twitter, no Facebook, no 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 YouTube. It's a lot more civil over here, I guess. Um, you hey, you lot, know what? I, 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 I dream of a world without those things sometimes. So uh, <laughs> may, maybe ignorance is bliss you know, as it relates to that. I remember, I remember when all those platforms got, they all got canceled sometime between 2008 and 2010, I think. They all got blocked. And uh, I remember when it happened and I was so disappointed and upset and I didn't understand why they were so, why the government was so um, threatened by the platforms. But having seen the way that they've evolved and the way that they've, they've, you know, uh, the positives and the negatives, but mainly the negatives that it, have, that it has on society, I can understand why they did it early because that's too much, too much for China. Yeah. I mean, my personal point of view on that, not to go on a, on a, down a different rabbit hole as yeah. we're trying to wrap up the show, but, uh, yeah, I, I think I think Twitter's great for a small percentage of people. Uh, for for the person that understands, hey, I need to be going out and getting new information. I need to be following people that don't think like me so that I can bring new ideas into my life and into my yeah. brain. For that person, Twitter's great. That is not yeah. the average person. The average person just wants to be in that echo chamber and hear more of what that are they they want their com they they want their biases confirmed and. Twitter's a great place for confirmation bias and to just hear more information that you already know. So anyway. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, somehow we closed on a Twitter rant, but you know what, Greg, this, is, this has been an <laughs> awesome episode and I uh, appreciate you coming on, man. Look forward to our next conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's been great. All right. We'll talk to you later, Greg. Today's episode is brought to you by Checked In a new tool in your operations toolkit that helps you understand exactly who's working in your venue. It's one of the tech products the engagement team helped create during the pandemic, and with it, we set out to solve some of the key problems sports and entertainment operators face every day. The tool does a few things, from helping you gain more labor data to operate more efficiently and mitigate risk, and it also saves you time and headaches by automating the horrible check-in and credential approval process that has existed for so long. But my favorite part of Checked-In, hands down, is that it's tied to a digital learning platform. Now, historically, training game day staff has taken place before the beginning of a season. But how do you train the workers that start mid-season? Or the workers that just come in to work the big games, the big events? Well, this tool solves that issue. With Checked In, you can create and push training to your teammates digitally, and you can require employees to watch training videos before they're able to physically check in to work. Checked In has begun rolling out at some of the biggest stadiums in the country. If you want to see how it works and get a demo, head to checkedin.app. That's C-H-E-C-K-D-I-N.app. We'll make it easy and link to it in the show notes. Hey guys, before you head out, just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. That helps more of your peers find the show as they search for ways to get better in their own roles. But this podcast is just a small part of what we do at Engagement. In our normal day in the office, we're crazy focused on helping athletic departments and sports and entertainment companies generate more revenue by becoming more customer-centric. To see how we might be able to help your organization, Visit engagementpartners.com to learn more. Download a free guide, check out our blogs and case studies, or schedule a call with us if you want to see how we can help with your particular objectives. Our goal is to help you create deeper connections with fans and generate more revenue. So when you're with us, 
hopefully you find a nugget or two that helps your cause.